The following podcast is a part of RadioMisfits.com. We have chosen to omit names or use sound effects in this production because the individuals discussed have not been formally arrested, charged, or accused of wrongdoing in the death of Carol Rofstead. The normal police department declined to participate in this podcast. Six weeks after the release of our first episode, we began to get some important tips. One with an undeniable blood relation to a key suspect. Hey, how are you? Hey, remember when we thought the had a child given up for adoption? Yeah. Nope. I just talked to her. That child, born of that one-night stand, was her biological father. I'm for sure his biological daughter. I mean, you could just see, you could see the resemblance. Isn't there something with my DNA that could help? You know something? I just, I remember getting a phone call. When? 2008. Telling me people are going to be calling me. Don't say no. Yes. I'm sorry. I just, don't get involved. Uh, They were going to try to presume your father's grave. Don't get involved. It's not, it's full crap. Blah, blah, blah. You're going to look at the sketch and then you're going to be like, Whoa. From Genuine Human Productions, this is Carol's Last Christmas. Chapter 10. Where do we go from here? If you've been listening to our story, you'll recognize George Seibel. Are we all here? Retired Chicago cop. Cold case expert. Relentless. The two hallmark features of my meeting with the cop and the state's attorney's office guy in 2008 was, A, they lied to me about having passed the polygraph test and being eliminated. The second thing is that they didn't give me names, but what they said turned out by our own investigation to be accurate. There were two guys from Tennessee did it. One was alive. The other one was dead. So we know that's So they were straight about that. So why is it 14 years later and they never did anything? We've heard it said that dead men tell no tales. Well, that doesn't apply to their families.
Do you mind if I record our conversation? No, go ahead. Okay. Um, I was born in 1974, and my biological mother, biological father met, and it was a one, literally one encounter. I, for some reason, can't remember the tavern in Bloomington Normal that they met at, but it'll come to me. I just have to ask a few questions. Might it have been the Red Lion? I don't know. She had given me up at birth. I was adopted. When I turned 18, um, I was able to have Catholic Charities find out who my biological parents were. There was not much on at all, like no name, no nothing. And uh, what was in the file was he was arrested in Texas. He was in jail at the time of um, signing off on me, of giving up his rights. I was like 21, a little over 21 years old when I met for the first time and um, flew out to Nashville and um, met him. And then I would go out there a couple times a year to go on horseback trips. He had a farm called the Broken Ass Mule Farm. Let me, let me rewind to when you first laid eyes on him. What did you think? Oh, God. Evan. I, was, I was excited. I mean, it was like a dream come true. I know that sounds crazy, but I needed closure. I needed to know where I came from. I was just so happy I finally found that piece of my life that I was wondering what happened to it. And was he warm and friendly? And Oh, God, yes. Yes, yes. He knew that I wanted no, nothing financial from, financially from him. People change their lifestyles. I mean, they change, but I can tell you there was always something odd something odd about them living they lived on 487 Daddy Green Road there was just always something mysterious you know something odd Thank you so much for calling me back I know it's kind of a crazy and strange phone call and I apologize for that in advance Oh, that's all right. Uh, you know, like I said, I've heard the story. We've identified an ex-wife, several children, and some siblings of... This is his sister, who lives near Nashville. Okay. I was uh, married at this in 1975, and I really, I knew all of my family's friends, but I'm sure that my brother was in Florida. Because he lived there most of the time. Mm -hmm. In December of 75, when Carol was killed, was he in Florida or in Texas where he'd been in jail? Two um, detectives from Bloomington came to Tennessee when he moved here because he wanted to be closer to family and questioned him. And I don't know if they fingerprinted him or not. I'm not sure. So that was the last time I heard about this story. Here's where we learned of a new name. But um, I talked to family members, and they're saying it's... Um, a man roughly the same age, with a long criminal history in central Illinois. 
and his brother were the ones that committed this crime. That name has not surfaced at all. Who is he? Is he a Bloomington native? Yes. And um, I believe now he lives in Creve Corps by Peoria. Um, I think he's retired now. If you pull up Facebook, you'll get him on there. I was shocked that he was on there. Was he a troublemaker? He's crazy. Yes. And he still is. And uh, he has a brother that's in a mental institution. Why, I don't know. And I don't know his first name. And um, they say that they're responsible, that he was a crazy man then, he still is. And he strikes a uncanny resemblance to my brother. Really? Even now. I know they had another suspect. And I'd heard that one of the suspects was in a mental institution. So that kind of fits with the family. Do you think would have been capable of something like this? No. I mean, he was an extraordinarily good-looking fellow. I mean, he didn't have any problem with women whatsoever. Um, his wife still lives around here somewhere. Police files we obtained through the Freedom of Information Act talked about that wife. Apparently, detectives from Normal had met up with her in Tennessee at some point. When I called Christiana, Tennessee, um, woman woman answered the phone, and uh, my storyline was, I'm looking at a police report right now that says that... Um, when, when uh, two normal Illinois police detectives came to visit, they said, come on, tell us what was going on, what went on. And she said, I'm not ready to talk yet. So I said, that implies greatly that she knows. And uh, what we would like to do is follow that particular lead and assumption and so on. And so she stopped me in the middle of what I was saying. And she let out a bellow like she was talking to somebody in Memphis. Come here! <laughs> and so uh, some guy got on the phone and what what the F do you want? You're kind of looking to get hurt, aren't you? As we began to investigate the background of we came across a man who had him arrested for assault. I didn't really know how, like, kind of crazy he was at the time until, like, you know, like within five months there or whatever, I was just like, I got my window busted out. You know, he come to my work with a steel pipe. You know, I had to go get a restraining order. I had to go get a gun permit. Turns out he was having an affair with wife. She was wound up going through a divorce and we was dating there for a while. She did tell me that one time that they come down and question him for that. Oh, yeah? What did she say about that? I kind of think that she thought he'd done it, but they come down there and they was looking for him or something. And then that's all I really heard. But I didn't know about, you know, I, until I seen this case, I didn't know about the depth of it, you know. Right. thought he was just suspected in the murder up there, but I didn't even know it was a girl or nothing else until I looked at that, you know, the Facebook page and stuff and seen all that. <laughs> And I did see that picture, and I was like, man, that really looks like him. You know, you probably get that in your mind, but it did favor him a lot. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. You think, um, I mean, you could tell the kind of temper the guy had and the kind of lack of self-control. Would he be capable? Yes. Yes. I, I think so, because I know that when they lived in Florida, that he was, I don't going to say he was with the cartel or whatever, but I know he run drugs, you know, like from Miami back then. You know that. So, I mean, as that more stuff I was learning at that time, I was like, you know, I was kind of getting scared. You know, I was going to give it another month and I was going to be out. He found out that um, two two out of four of the children aren't his. Here's the older sister. And he did not know that until like two weeks before he passed. Mm. Um, he, him and his father had a very ugly relationship, I guess you could say. This woman was married to eldest child who died of a drug overdose. My, my husband passed away in 2012, but my husband was not his real son. And my husband did not know that my husband was 18 years old and he had come in on one night and was spinning a pistol on the table and playing Russian roulette and my husband was trying to calm him down and um, looked at him in the face he said you're not even my real son but he was just very just very hopeful he used to beat on him and he was just real hard on him and a drunk and did a lot of drugs and I hate to talk about this man that's dead but this is what my husband had told me from his childhood and you know his dad was just a mean man in December of 2001, was killed when his car went off the side of the road. I think he was drunk, drink, drinking and driving. He had just pleaded guilty to assaulting the man who had been dating his estranged wife. He was on antidepressants bad news, a bad alcoholic. I do know those two things. He died 26 years to the day that Carol Rofsted was beaten over the head. They wonder if that's why he committed suicide. It's been a shocking revelation to our suspect's biological daughter. Now tell me more about the suicide. That was well known that everyone was saying he killed himself? No one was just saying it was a DUI wreck? No, he killed himself. He drove himself off the mountain. It crushed his uh, chest. He killed himself. But they were going through divorce. She was sleeping. She was cheating on him. And I remember talking to him about that. Was he upset? Oh, very much so. So that's how all these years I thought that's why he drove himself off a mountain. But the dates, I'm talking, the date that he his suicide and the date of her death. I don't know. It's like, to me, it's some weird sense. I feel like that's, a, that's just a weird coincidence. In a moment, one mystery is solved. Okay, this particular class was um, called criminal investigation. And I took it in the summer. I believe it was the summer of 91 because I graduated in the spring of 92. We know who ended up with the murder weapon. He had it on the desk, and I, I'm, I'm pretty sure it wasn't in plastic or anything. It was, um, you know, wide open. And how he got it. 
and he told us that it was the railroad tie that killed um, a young female ISU student in 1975. It was the weapon of choice. Hi, um, my name is Allie. I'm a freelance journalist, and I'm was he a professor at ISU? That's right. Yeah, I'm wondering if I, is he home? Yeah, he is. Presented with little or no interruption, Carol's Last Christmas has been an expensive endeavor. If you appreciate our investigation, please consider making a donation. Visit patreon.com forward slash Carol's Last Christmas. Basically, whatever comes from your body is potential DNA evidence. Blood, semen, saliva, skin tissue, dandruff, bones, teeth, nails, hair, earwax, vaginal cells, rectal urine, feces, sweat. This will all give you DNA. That's Detective Sergeant Joseph Blosus. No mistaking, he's from the NYPD. Back in the 1980s, if you were to give a biological sample, such as blood, the size of a quarter or a dime, the forensic laboratory would able to be, provide you a DNA profile. In the 90s, through technology and advancements in instrumentation, we are able to reduce that size from a dime to barely visible. Currently today, touch DNA, 10 to 20 skin cells will give you a DNA profile. It's now 2023. 48 years since Carol was beaten on the lawn of her sorority house at ISU. DNA is solving so many cold cases, but odds are this will not be one of them. Where do we stand on the murder weapon in a professor's hands? You know what? I, I, don't, I don't know if that's folklore or what. For years, a rumor had been circulating about the murder weapon. Was it a baseball bat? Was it a, was it a four by four? Was it a two by two? It had been taken out of evidence by someone. I have one question about an item that is actually listed and it's just kind of a weird entry. Some of the records we got through Freedom of Information provided a hint. Um, third from the bottom, it talks about Two Polaroids of exhibit number four before and after original package removed. And like exhibit number four is the piece of wood with red stuff on it. So I'm assuming it's the murder weapon. The only normal police officer who spoke with us early on the record was forthcoming. Do you guys keep like an updated evidence list? I guess I'm just wondering like where that evidence would be. It's all... It's all, it's you guys all, still keep vault, it, right? Because yeah. it's an and, open case. Yes. And yeah. from what I understand, and I can't speak 100% to it, mm-hmm. there are, throughout the years, I've, I don't know for a fact, but I've heard that there was some issues with evidence mm-hmm. at times. I would love to meet the cop 
that gave the murder weapon away to the college professor. Was it somebody he thought could help? Do you know that? I don't know. Hello? Hi, is this Joanna? Yes, it is. This is Demetria Kaladimos, um, the podcast producer, Carol's Last Christmas. Yes, uh-huh. We were absolutely thrilled to get your email, because that's something we've been trying to chase down for two years. I was at ISU from 89 to 92. I went to get my bachelor's degree, and I got it in criminal justice. Okay. And at the time, it's, it was at the top of the list as far as schools to go to for criminal justice. It was in the top 10. This particular class was, um, I believe at the time it was called criminal investigation. And I took it in the summer. I believe it was the summer of 91 because I graduated in the spring of 92. My instructor was Dr. Frank Morn, and it's M-O-R-N. And he had the, um, I believe it was a railroad tie. That's what we were told it was that killed Carol. It was the weapon of choice. And um, he had it on the desk. And I, I'm, I'm pretty sure it wasn't in plastic or anything. It was, um, you know, wide open. And he had it on the desk. And he told us that it was the railroad tie that killed um, a young female ISU student in 1975. Well, I was familiar with that case because I grew up here. Mm -hmm. And then that's how um, I knew, you know, something about it. What was your reaction when he said, here's the weapon? Um, My first thought was, number one, how did he get it? And number two, why it wasn't locked up in evidence, how he, you know, had it in his possession. Because I thought to myself, well, that's kind of odd that an open case that wasn't solved, you know, would have, you know, evidence floating around. Um, and another thing I thought of, too, was here we are in class learning about the chain of custody when it comes to collecting evidence. And this was an unsolved case. I couldn't believe it. And I saw the blood stain still on it. Of course, I didn't speak. I should have spoke up. But, you know, when you're 18, 19, 20 years old, you don't think of that at the time. And I should have asked him why, you know, he had it. But I didn't. Yeah. Well, you know, hindsight. But this yeah. was already in the age of DNA. We're talking know, 90s. Exactly. Exactly. Um, in fact, one of the books we read was... Um, about how DNA evidence was um, discovered. You know, here they are, using, you know, floating evidence around that could have been preserved until technology caught up. Hello. Does a Frank Morin live here? Yeah. Hi, I'm, my name is Allie. I'm a freelance journalist. And I'm, is he a professor at ISU? That's right. Yeah, I'm wondering if, I, is he home? Yeah, he is. Could I speak to him, maybe? And why do you want to speak to him? Well, I have a podcast, it's called Carol's Last Christmas, and it's about the murder of Carol Rofstad. And 
we were told through our investigation that he had the murder weapon in his classroom at one point. Oh my gosh. Next time on Carol's Last Christmas. I had a machete. I had uh, a couple of uh, disabled firearms. The case of the missing murder weapon. I would love to meet the cop that gave the murder weapon away to the college professor. Well, I would think it's locked up in evidence, right? Who done it? And who had it? And I do remember there was a piece of wood. And could there have been a real eyewitness? I'd like to make this statement. Okay. I won't feel uh, slighted or mad at all if you say, John, we'd like to polygraph you on that. Because anything I say to you, I'm willing to polygraph it to you. I'm not going to lie about any of this. No, I've... I've lived with it too long. Carol's Last Christmas is a genuine human production reported from interviews with friends, family, and experts, and based on official records obtained through the Freedom of Information Act. Lead investigator George Seibel, Chicago Police Department, retired. Investigator and co-producer, Alexandra Daskalopoulos. Investigator, writer, and narrator, Demetria Kaladimos. Voiceover recreation, Justin Holder. Audio mastering and consultation by Paul Gibson. Music provided rights-free by Artlist, Blue Dot Sessions, Motion Array, and Storyblocks. Original music by Verlin Thompson. Graphics by Orlando Rodriguez and Thalia Kaladimos. Website and promotional material, Thalia Kaladimos and Jim Champis. Our theme song is Criminal by Binge Heard, featuring Katrina Stone, courtesy of Artlist. Carol's Last Christmas is distributed by Radio Misfits. Our sincere thanks to the Reporters Committee for Freedom of the Press for pre-publication review, and to those who knew and loved Carol and generously shared their stories.